Welcome to the podcast about stories from the center of the universe. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman, and this is Podzo One. Tim Clark is the Chief Digital Officer at NASCAR. He is a Mechanicsville native, U.S. Army veteran, and a great lover of sports. This episode, Tim talks to us about growing up on a farm, what it's like to drive a tank, how his first job out of college was to spearhead Circuit City's e-commerce efforts, and about his work at NASCAR. NASCAR had a big year in 2020, which involved a COVID-inspired pivot into esports and a high-profile ban of the Confederate flag. And Tim shares some of his thoughts on navigating it all. So here's Tim Clark. Okay, Tim Clark, um, SVP and Chief Digital Officer of NASCAR. Welcome to Podso One. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate you guys having me. Very cool. Tim, uh, I guess we should tell our audience that Tim and I have a mutual connection in Kevin Flippin. I'll just get that one out of the way. Kevin may not listen to any more of the podcast after he's heard his name, but uh, (laughs) Kevin may be one of the most solid, nicest people in the world. And so he's got this fantastic network of people to include you and me, Tim. Uh, And so, yeah, Kevin is our uh, connection and I, I couldn't be happier that I'm friends with Kevin and, and that we have an opportunity to chat with you tonight. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I, I think Kevin's got to put put us right at the top of the list, right? I mean, it's that, that seems that seems right. That seems exactly right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Tim, did you, did you grow up in Hanover County? I did. I grew up in uh, in Mechanicsville on a on a, a giant farm that my family still lives on to this day. All right, so we're, we're going to go Homer, Hanover County here for a second. I grew up in the town of Ashland. I'm okay. very familiar with Hanover County, lived here most of my life, still, still live in Hanover County. Uh, where, where was the, uh, the parents' place? The, uh, the so farm? it's off, uh, off of Rule Point Road. Um, it's, uh, it's about a quarter of a mile off of, uh, on 643 Rule Point Road, once you make the, uh, make the turn towards Rule Point Elementary off of, off of 301. And what's the name of the farm? Rolling Stone Farm. I know exactly where it is. Yeah. That's, that's where you grew up? That's where I grew up. That sign was stolen more times than I could count. Everybody <laughs> thought that Rolling Stone Farm was a really good <laughs> Big Jagger must be back there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, uh, that is small world kind of stuff, man. Because, I mean, I, I've been in that area thousands of times over the last 52 years. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's nuts. And and I'm, the, uh, I'm very much the black sheep because my... Uh, I've got three sisters, all of whom live within, you know, a, a couple of miles from 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 that uh, um, area of town where my parents and and aunts and uncles still are, uh, and then I'm five hours away, so uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm the black sheep. Could could we classify uh, that part of the world as the Clark compound? That's exact. That's pretty much what what we, we refer to it as. So yeah, that's uh, that's about right. All right, what, what number in the four are you? Uh, I'm the youngest, three uh, three sisters, and I'm the you, youngest. You are a lucky dude, Tim. You are a lucky guy. Uh, I uh, I will tell you this. I, uh, I I learned how to put makeup on uh, at a very very early age. Uh, that's, that's for sure. It's just what you do, right? <laughs> you, you could fight it, or you can go along with it. Go along uh, with that, it, probably. Easier. That is that's exactly right. <laughs> Sweet. So, how did you spend your time when you were a kid, like 10, 12 years old? Man, I, I tell you, I, I, I guess when you're a kid, you don't, you're too much of a knucklehead to appreciate it, right? But, but I look back on, on that period of time, and I, I couldn't have had a better childhood. Um, you know, there, that farm is almost 90 acres, almost all 
you know, woods and trails and, and everything like that. So bikes and four wheelers and, and there's a pond back there to go fishing. Um, you know, growing up with my whole family where I could walk to my grandparents' house. Um, you know, my, my, my cousins live back there. Um, and, and, you know, when I was, when I was younger and all, and all of my friends that I went to school with lived in, in neighborhoods and subdivisions, I was like, man, those guys are so lucky. It must be so cool to live, uh, you know, in a neighborhood like that. And, and I look back on it and still to this day, when I, when I go visit, I, I I'm like, I, I couldn't, couldn't have scripted a, a better childhood. So, uh, growing up back there was, was the absolute best. So you were you know, outside you all the uh, there, there was no such thing as being inside. I, yeah. I, and, and, and I don't know, I, I think I, I give my mom, uh, you know, I, I pin it on her that, that she kicked us out of the house, but I don't recall wanting to spend a whole lot of time it, unless I was inside watching sports. I, I didn't really have much use for being inside. Um, so, so yeah, out, outside pretty much uh, sun up to sundown. And was this like a functional farm or was it just called Rolling Stone farm? Like, did you, did you get put to work? Daniel, that is a good question. Um, so, so I think as I got older, I realized that it was just functional enough for my dad to get the tax benefit uh, from a farm. <laughs> um, I mean, there were there were cows back there, and and there were you know the the occasional um, crop, uh, but but I, I don't know that I would go so far as to call it functional. There was a lot of work to be done. Don't get me wrong, but but I don't know about functional. Were you nice. slinging, slinging and, uh, a lot of bales of hay? Lots of bales of hay, uh, lots of grass. I, I give, uh, I, I joke with my dad about this, um, cut God knows how many acres of, of grass with the oldest push mower known to man for, for the entirety <laughs> of my life. And uh, the, I, left, uh, I, I left for basic training when I was, when I was 18 and, and I came home after basic training, my dad had a brand new, uh, riding lawnmower, and I was like, that that didn't last long. (laughs) Oh man. There's no way he was going to do what you were. He had you doing the last, uh, several years. That's right. He got out there one time. just like this, this is for the birds. I'm like, go get something you can ride around on. (laughs) That's, that's amazing. So where'd you go to high school? So I started at, at Lee Davis, uh, and then after my sophomore year, they opened at Lee. Um, man, that, that makes you feel old when there's a high school that's been around forever. You're like, oh, yeah, and they built it, and I was, you know, one of the, <laughs> I was the second graduating class uh, of at Lee. So I went to at Lee my junior and senior year. So was that a big deal to change schools like that, or did you basically move with a bunch of your friends? Um, it was, it was easy, right? Because to your point, I mean, you, you're going with, with people that you grew up with and, and it was, while it was weird to move schools, it, it was less weird because you were doing it all, uh, you know, with a bunch of people that you had grown up with and, and gone to school with for years. So I remember it being pretty cool. Like the, the, you know, the notion of a brand new school we were walking into on day one for the first time, uh, was, was really cool. Um, on the athletic side. Not so much um, that we uh, we got we got our butts kicked uh, in, in football, um, but it was it was pretty cool, especially that you could go to a new school, but you were you were doing it with all your with all your buddies. And you're saying get, got your butt kicked in football. Do you mean like Lee Davis and Patrick Henry? And I, I say Lee Davis. I don't know what the new name is. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say Lee Davis, not because uh, of, of any affiliation, just because I don't know what the new name is. But but yes, Lee Davis uh, was 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 not too kind to us uh, the, those first couple of years. <laughs> I, I guess you guys viewed Lee Davis as a rival and they're just like, you're our little brother kind of thing. Yeah, because essentially what it was is the football team got split in two. I mean, I, I had played, um, you know, growing up, I, I played. I guess whatever Stonewall is, I, I played at Stonewall and then I played Lee Davis JV and, and then, you know, we, we basically split. And, and so it was kind of like, you know, one team was, was split into two, which was, which was just weird, uh, especially weird when, when they were beating the crap out of us. Yeah. I, I grew up in Patrick Henry country and uh, when at least started, it made the Patrick Henry team uh, infinitely better relative to Lee Davis. Right. <laughs> there you go. That's a good time. So uh, you graduated high school. And did you know from a young age you were going to join the army? Um, I, I mean, my my family, my my uh, my uncle, my grandfather, my my dad were all in the military. So I think it was always back there. Um, and and I I gave it a shot. Uh, I went to college for a good ten days. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I I gave it I gave it the college try, and I just realized I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I want to do. I, I don't know. I mean. I'm, I'm, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to get a college degree and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not prepared for any of this. I, I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. Um, and I really didn't give it a lot of thought or, or have too many discussions. I just drove, uh, I drove downtown to the recruiting station and walked in and was like, where do I sign up? Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so a couple of weeks, um, you know, after, after giving college a try, I, uh, enlisted and headed off to basic training. Did you have an idea what you wanted to do in the army or did you just like, Hey, I'm here, put me through your training and we'll see where this goes. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I don't know if it's still this way, but uh, the way it was then was you take, you take a, a test and based on the results of that test, they tell you what you're qualified to do in the, in the military. And I, I did seemingly well on the test and said, he gave me all of these options of, of things that I could do. And so I, I start listing, I'm like, what about this? And what about this? And they're like, Oh, that's not available right now. And I was like, all right, well, why don't we do this a different way? Why don't you tell me what is available? And they were like, uh, you could be on a tank or you could do infantry. That's really all we've got right now. <laughs> I was like, uh, all right, well, uh, tank sounds kind of cool. Let's, let's do that. Um, oh, so you're, you're an armor guy. Yeah. 19 kilo. Nice. So th that recruiter was completely full of crap. Oh, for sure. I, and, and you, it's like, uh, you know, when you get to basic training, you start exchanging stories with other people and they're like, yeah, I, I, I heard the same thing. And then, you know, the people that are in, they're like, no, that's not the way that works at all. <laughs> A number he had to hit of, uh, of grunts and uh, tankers. And yeah, he's like, yeah, but that's it. These are the that's only two right. available. That's right. And you probably came in hot saying, I, 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 I'll do whatever the army needs me to do. That's exact. I was ready to go. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I didn't know how any of this worked. I thought when I went to sign up, I thought that they were going to be like, okay, go home and pack a bag and, and you leave tomorrow. I, I had no idea what the process looked like. So I was this guy's dream come true. I, I would have done anything and signed anything he, he put in front of me. If he so saw one of you every day, he would have been the richest recruiter in the army. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, what does the process look like if it's not the pack your bag and leave tomorrow thing? 
So you, you've got a, you know, you, you've got a couple of weeks, you, you go through some um, medical evaluations and, you know, you, you kind of get everything in order, figure out where you're going to go. And, and, you know, they've got, uh, you know, date ranges of every so often they, they start a new round of, of basic training. So, so I had to, uh, had to wait for that. So it was probably, I don't know, uh, about six weeks from the time I, I signed up to the, to the time that I left just enough time for it to really get in your head. Did you nice. do one station uh, for AIT and for basic? I did. I went to, uh, to Fort Knox and here, here's, it's great. Um, so the only movie at the time that I'm really familiar with for basic training is stripes. Yes. And we and are so, that age, Tim. I love yeah, that movie. That's right. And, and, and so that's the picture in my head. Okay. Well, you may know this, that's Fort Knox. That, yeah. That's the basic training barracks at Fort Knox. So when I show up, the only picture I have in my head, I'm like, Oh, this, it does look like this. Exactly what I expect. You, you were just waiting for John Candy to walk around yeah. the corner. That's right. There were no pudding wrestling matches. That I was about. <laughs> oh man. That those barracks, those, they were built in world war two and they didn't oh, yeah. seem to care a whole lot about it. Any com- com- comfort uh, at all. They, they did just, not. They did it was not, very not smart. A lot of, uh, not a lot of upfitting uh, for, for those barracks. They, they finally got rid of those things, Tim, like, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe. Is that right? I, I think there's still some posts that, that have them. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it was like, what I remember of them was like three shower heads that like 40 guys shared. That's right. That's yeah, right. That, that's good times. Yeah. Okay. That's when you know you're, you're, not in, you're not in Hanover County anymore. <laughs> it's much different from the Clark compound, I'll tell you. <laughs> so h- how long uh, were you in? Uh, I did about four and a half years active and then, uh, another 18 months in, in the reserves. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was the better part of, of, of six years that, that I was, that I was enlisted. What's, what's your uh, fondest memory? Man, I, I tell you, I, I, I loved every minute of it. I, I, I remember a day, I think it was the second week of basic training that, that it, it kind of clicked that I, I kind of figured out what we were there for and, um, you know, how, how things seemingly worked. And, and that's not to say it wasn't a challenge and it wasn't hard. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the, the organization of it. I enjoyed the challenge of it. I enjoyed meeting people that I never would have encountered in a million years uh, otherwise from, from all over the country. Um, I, I, I don't know that, that I could, that I could think of one thing. I, I, I really enjoyed all of it, uh, from, from the first day I was in to the day I left. Um, I was a huge fan of it. And, and you know, I think, um, I, I remember the first time I drove a tank, I remember thinking like, this is my job. You, you know what I mean? Like someone is paying me to drive a tank right now. And- not, not a lot of money, but you were, you were getting paid to do <laughs> for it. Sure, for sure. Paying me may, may be generous, but, uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I remember a couple of times like that, that I was like, this is, uh, this is incredible. This is, this is what I, I do for a living. Which, which and tank, which tank were you on? Uh, M1A1 Abrams. Um, so it was right before the, the A2 came out. Um, and how, how much does that bad boy weigh? Do you remember? Man, I don't remember how much it weighs, but I remember that it it went. It had a jet engine in it, and it went about sixty miles an hour 
and, and could shoot targets from, I think like 4,500 meters. Uh, just unbelievable piece of wow. Theory. So that's, when you that's say because, drive, you that's because we live, that's because we live in America, Daniel. <laughs> That's, yeah, I was gonna say that's why that was going on. It sounds a little bit more like NASCAR than driving a tank. <laughs> that's right. A little bit I know. That was my my, uh, my introduction. Did, did you have any experiences with uh, leadership that you felt kind of developed you as as a leader in the military? Yeah, you know, I think, and and I I love to tell you that I was kind of paying attention and 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 kind of molding what I wanted to be. But I think a lot of it I I picked up off of of osmosis or or even looking back on those experiences. But I, I remember everything seeming very straightforward. That that there wasn't a lot of you know argument from 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 one side or the other. It was it was very much a um, you know. I think even down to the pay, right? Like relative to your rank and the number of years that you're in, there's a sliding scale that dictates how much you get paid. So unlike the corporate world where it's like, well, this guy doesn't have as much experience, but was right place, right time, whatever the case may be. I mean, it was, uh, it was very straightforward. You knew it was expected of you. The communication was very straightforward. Uh, I, I think just a very strong, uh, you know, leadership style, all of that stuff, I, th I think, stuck with me and, and maybe didn't make the impression in the moment, but, but certainly as I got into my professional career, gave me a lot to, to kind of as a, as a reference point almost. Yeah, it's, it's this weird blend of order, right? Because the, the pay table that you're talking about, if you're the best E4 in the U.S. Army and you've been in the same amount of time as an E5 who's the worst E5 in the Army, that E5 is making a little bit more money. right. Exactly but, right. But it is a meritocracy in uh, in terms of promotions. That's, that's no, no where question. the meritocracy comes in. No question. Well, and I remember a couple of times uh, towards the end of my enlistment, uh, what, what, what you're talking about with uh, with some of those promotions, I remember thinking, and, and you guys will love this, uh, I remember thinking, man, when I get out of the military, I'm not going to miss the politics of this. Like uh, I'm going to get into corporate America and, and there won't be so many politics. <laughs> and I think about that now, like, yeah, that's, that's funny. That's, uh, that's not right at all. Yeah. My experience with politics in the military versus corporate is military feels like it's 60% of corporate politics. -ish. That's about right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you're right. Yeah. Wait, so that's saying yeah, that I, there's, there's 40% more politics in corporate than there is in the military. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not to say that it, it, there's no politics, right? It's human beings interacting. You have to have some politics or it's not going to go anywhere. Right, but right. Yeah. Oh, po yeah. Politics is a necessary evil in any organization that has three or more people, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's good yeah. times. So what did you do after? Uh, well, I, I have to ask for posterity's sake. What rank did you make it up to? Uh, so I got out as an E4. Uh, okay. I, I never went to leadership training uh, because we, we – um, I tell you what they love to do with those tanks is, is send us on, uh, on little mini deployments. Uh, so, so I never stayed put long enough to, to go to leadership training. So, uh, got out as an E4. What, uh, what post did you go to besides Knox? So, uh, Knox Riley, uh, in Kansas, which, whew, um, that is, uh, everything you expect out of, out of middle America, you can find at Fort Riley, Kansas. Uh, did, uh, did a little bit of time in, uh, in Fort Irwin, California, in the middle of the Mojave desert, um, bounced around there, Fort Stewart, Georgia a little bit. So, uh, so, so made, made the rounds a good bit. 
That's amazing. I've not, I've not been to any of those four. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, uh, name name all the other army posts. I've I've been on them. I mean, <laughs> Is any, that right? anywhere, anywhere from Benning to Fort Leonard Wood to Fort yeah. Polk, which I you should consider yourself very lucky you never went to Fort Polk. Uh, even Schofield Barracks out in Hawaii, the army only the army can find the crappiest part of Hawaii and build an <laughs> army post. Oh man, that sounds right. Yeah, they they didn't like spending a lot of money. No, no, that is for certain. Yeah, and, and Riley just had to be the wonderful place to have tanks roll around. I'm guessing. Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, I mean, it was uh, if if you're, I, I guess they knew what they were doing, right? Uh, there there is plenty of open terrain to uh, to do gunnery tables and and things like that. So uh, not not a bad place to be with the tank. Very cool. So when you got out of the army, did you feel like, hey, I'm ready to take on the world, or you're like, holy crap, I have no idea what's what's next for me because being a tanker does not translate well to the civilian workforce. No, I, I'll tell you this story. I've, I've told this story a lot just because I'm so entertained by it. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but the army, I will say does a really nice job as you're transitioning in, into civilian world too. I, you know, I went through this workshop where they helped me with my resume. Uh, they, they got, you know, helped me with letters of recommendation, you know, gave me kind of tips of how to translate, you know, what I did in the military into, into the professional world. And this poor guy that was running the workshop had this stack of, of, uh, of VHS tapes. And he was kind of going around the room like, what did you do? Oh, I was an engineer. Popped the tape in. It was like, here's all the things that you could do in your career based on your engineering background. The guy gets to me, he's like, what, what did you do? And I said, I, I, was, I was on a tank. And he turns around and he's like, ah, yeah, rifling through these tapes. Finally digs this poor dusty tape off the bottom and pops it in. And it's like, with your training, you could be a forklift operator or a, like, a bulldozer. And I was like, uh, marketing, what about marketing? Like, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, um, so I, I was, I was ready to, to take on the world, but I, I didn't know, I, I didn't know where to start. And, and I don't know about you, but, but I, um, I really struggled with, with, I guess, re-entry because going from, you know, the, the kind of the, the scheduling and, and, and all of the order amongst chaos in, in being an active duty to, to going home and, and, and starting a job, it just felt chaotic. So um, I, I knew I was ready for re-entry, but man, I, I struggled with it for, for several months. Yeah, but my story is a bit different, and I'll bore you off recording uh, after we record tonight. Uh, but I, I, but I did have to go through some semblance of trying to reintegrate into the world, and it's uh, it's weird. It's definitely for sure, weird. for sure. Yeah, good time. So, so did, you, uh, did, did that take you back to school? As uh, part so, of your, so yeah. actually, one of the things that I didn't know about the the army when I went when I went in that I found out, you know, I, I knew about the the money that that you got for college that you could apply afterwards. But what I didn't know is that you could also take classes while you're in active duty. If if you can make it work in your schedule, you you can do it while while you're while you're enrolled or enlisted. Um, so when I was stationed in Fort Riley, I, I actually finished school. Um, taking classes remotely at Kansas State. So, so when I got out, I, you know, I was done with my enlistment and I'd also gotten my, my degree. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. It, it couldn't have worked out better. And again, I love, everyone's like, man, you really had a, a good plan and you stuck with it. I'm like, that's exactly what it was, a plan. <laughs> that's it. 
yeah, driving tanks by day and <laughs> marketing by night. Yeah. That's sounds That's like right. a plan to me. That's right. What did you That's like cool. about mar- marketing? I don't, you know, it's a weird thing I've had since I was a kid where I, I used to memorize TV commercials. Um, mm. I was just, I don't know why I was just fascinated by it. Um, I, I love the idea of, of commercials and marketing and, and media. And uh, that's, that's really what, what I wanted to do. I, and I loved sports, but at the time I was like, I don't think, I don't, I, I, I'm definitely too short uh, to, to, to do anything professional in, in sports. And I'm, I mean, then the, the notion of working in sports, if you weren't a professional athlete, really wasn't as, you know, something that, that I, I thought was, was feasible. So, so marketing was, was it for me. Yeah. You didn't even think about it, right? Uh, yeah. I want to get into sports. That means you're playing. Exactly. And then, and then when you're older, maybe you coach, but you right. know, what's a 20 something year old kid going to do in sports? Right. That's exactly right. I, I had no idea. So I was like, well, I like marketing. I'll, I'll, I'll jump into that. It's so funny. Go ahead, well, Dan. it's funny now because marketing, when you're memorizing commercials as a kid versus marketing now with, you know, uh, targeted advertising and algorithms and user data and all that stuff. It's like, it feels like a completely different world. Did it feel, still feel like marketing as you, as you loved and knew it when you were studying it? Um, it does because of the emotional connection, right? I mean, it, it, to your point, it's taken on a different, a different form. It's, it's decidedly more creepy than I think it was then. Um, but I, I like the, you know, I like the challenge of, of connecting with someone. Um, and, and I think that's also the reason why I love sports so much, because I think there's just an emotional connection to sports and athletes and, and teams, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe that makes me a romantic at heart, but, uh, but, but I, I think that's kind of the same things that, that, um, that drove me to love sports were also the reasons I got into marketing. No, that's awesome. And, and I know so many uh, friend groups that one of the main activities that they all do together and love to talk trash about is their like fantasy sports, um, you know, and, and being involved and active in that scene. It's, it's a, it seems like I've never actually done it myself, but it's, it seems like it's a really cool way to just bond and be tight. Yeah. I, I think, I think, you know, the, you know, sports is, is just a, a big communal affair, right? I mean, from, from fantasy sports to tailgating to, you know, social media, I, I think it's, it, it, it certainly sparks a reaction uh, and, and an emotion. Uh, there, there's no question. Yeah. It definitely does. Daniel, uh, well, let's, let's go, let's go here. We haven't done this in a while, Daniel, Tim, uh, what's your favorite sport? Uh, other than NASCAR, I'll go with football. Nice, nice answer. That's a very good answer. football. Okay. So Daniel, do, do we want to talk about football for a bit or do we want to skip that part? Uh, sure. I'd be down to talk about football. Um, gosh, what, while he's thinking, what, we talk what, about? what position did you play in high school, Tim? Uh, I was defensive back. I played corner. So you were, uh, were you like Deion Sanders? Like nobody could get anything past you? Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe a fraction slower and, and certainly about a foot shorter, but, but otherwise the similarities are. are... How big a fellow were you your senior year? Oh, I was, I was certainly pushing every bit of five, seven and a half. Uh, no, no question. And what'd you, what'd you weigh in at? One probably 150, 155. You gotta be, I, so cornerback is a tough position. You got to be pretty tough to hit because 
almost everybody on the field's bigger than you, right? Oh, for sure. I, and I liked I liked the 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 mental aspect of it. I, I used to like to watch film to to try to figure out if I could uh, if I could learn the routes and and I mean because honestly I, I had to. What else was I going to do, right? I'm not I, I'm not jumping up to to you know defend jump balls or or you know balls in the back corner of the end zone. Uh, you know it was it was just a I'm going to have to outthink and outwork uh, whoever I'm against. Yeah. And, and that, that works a lot depending on how much time and energy you put into it. Right. I'm sure. Daniel, have you teed up an awesome football question? Uh, sort of. Yeah. But it, this conversation is reminding me of that. I think Paul was, Paul was a pretty prolific uh, football player back in, back in his day, but then when he tried to, I think further his he, career. He, he's only talked, he's only talked to me about this, Tim. He's <laughs> doesn't have anybody else's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they told him, they told him that he was too short too, actually to, to play seriously. So he had to give up. No, no, no. My problem was not size. My problem was foot speed. Uh, and he wasn't on it with the, with the cerebral stuff, maybe. I don't know. Oh, that's um, absolutely right. Yeah. No, I, yeah, well, that's a, maybe that's a good question then. Um, the, how much the impact of, of like the tactician and the, strate- the strat- strategy of the game versus nice. the, um, versus just the athletic phenoms who can just catch anything you throw at them, run really fast, dodge everybody. You know, what's the uh, how do those two forces play into each other and balance each other out? Oh, that's a that's a good question, Daniel. I, I here here's what I would say. I, I think one of the things that I love about football in particular is the fact that on the surface, and, and my wife is a is a good case study for this. My wife will watch five minutes of football and think these guys are morons. They're running into each other. You know, oh, you have to throw the ball and catch the ball. It's not, it's not that hard. Like, it, you know, on the surface, you, your initial reaction to football is, you know, this is a, a bunch of big morons doing mm-hmm. stuff that requires athletic skill and nothing else. And America, yeah. I like the the notion of once you get to know in, in any sport, but I'll, I'll use football as an example, that you dive below the surface and you start to realize how cerebral some of these guys are how smart they are, how much preparation they put in, how much toll it takes on their bodies. Uh, I, I love everything about sports from, from golf to football. I mean, the, the notion of, of how much effort goes into to, to being at the top echelon. I, I remember, uh, this is a, an NBA story, but Stan Van Gundy was, was on a radio show telling a story. And the question was, you know, what's the one story that you could relate to? relate to people to make them understand how good NBA players are relative to every other basketball player in the world. And he said, one day after practice, the last two players on the bench had stuck around and they were having a shoot around for, you know, whatever it was, a hundred bucks. And he said, they're making the most absurd shots that you can ever think of. Some of the most athletic moves that no one would ever dream of. And he's like, these guys will never see the light of day in a, in a, you know, in a game, they are on the very end of the bench and the worst two guys on this team are in the top, you know, fraction of a percent of all basketball players on the planet. And those are the worst guys on the team. And I think that perspective is lost when, when people watch sports on television. You know, I love, I love those, those things where people are like, you know uh, you know, the, the woman in the Olympics, like, uh, her back foot slips after a, like a quadruple somersault, and someone's like, "Moron!" Right? Like, she blew that. 
<laughs> I could have done yeah. that. Yeah. Sitting it's, on the couch with your Pringles. Exactly. Can of yeah. Pringles. Like, what a loser. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, uh, that's a great way to put it. And I think that um, observing somebody, there's also something about uh, seeing somebody who's at the top of their game, uh, the zealot, the person who gets in sensory deprivation chambers and visualizes winning and every day, every hour of their life is dedicated to, to like becoming perfect. I think that at least for me, I, I love like stories like that. I love hearing about uh, what Tom Brady does to like optimize himself, Steph Curry, what he does to optimize himself and, um, and what these like, I, I like watching the UFC too. And so these fighters go through this like really intense, Never mind the years and years of, of training they put in to their art, but they put in this like month long fight camp where they just all they're doing is dieting, training and just trying to become as perfect as they can uh, so that every little detail comes together uh, for, for the actual main event. And it's so cool to follow this along because I'm just this average dude with like a, a nine to five who, you know, um, I, I'm balancing a lot of things. And it seems like some of these folks, they don't balance anything. They're just like my life is like being good at throwing a football and that's yeah, it. That's right. Yeah. And I think you have to be that way. So my quick story about extremely uh, talented athletes, her story on another radio show, Tiger Woods uh, has a place in Florida. He has, I'm sure a few places, but I think he tended to live in this place in Florida that had this uh, airstrip in the middle of the neighborhood kind of thing. And other golfers, other professional athletes live there. And Tiger's out working on one particular shot with his nine iron and another golfer, another PGA guy walks past him. They, they exchange some words. Uh, and th this other guy goes out and plays 18 with his son comes back like three and a half, four hours later, Tiger's working on the same shot. Wow. He had, he hadn't gone to another shot. He had spent at least three and a half hours on one particular shot with his nine iron. That's crazy. Right. So you want to, you want to win uh, a bunch of major championships. You, you got to put that sort of time in. Right. No question. And, and you have to be gifted to begin with. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's a good time. So uh, marketing, uh, I imagine was analog when you first got into it. It was, uh, I was uh, my, my first, uh, my first few jobs were around, uh, were around print marketing, uh, newspaper marketing inserts, um, trying to figure out what, what zip codes you, <laughs> you should start targeting. Um, yeah, it was, it was very, uh, very different from, from what it was today. But, but I, I mean, again, the, the way, the way the world, uh, you know, works sometimes, um, I was at circuit city at the time in their corporate office in, in Richmond and, um, you know, working in, in very much a, a print marketing and merchandising realm. And I remember vividly, uh, because honestly, it's where my career changed. I remember being in a big room full of people and, and the topic was, hey, people are really starting to, to buy and sell stuff on the internet. We, we need to figure this out. We, we need to decide what we want to do here. Uh, this was 99, maybe, maybe late 98, early 99. This is back when everybody was afraid of Y2K too. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, and like the number of websites that everyone knew you could count on one hand. Um, so, you know, it, it was, it, we, we decided to, to kind of launch into this, into this e-commerce world. And, you know, I was like, I, I'll join, you know, fine. I'll, I'll be part of this group. We'll figure it out. Uh, so, so I remember taking, 
uh, ironically enough, online training courses to learn about the internet and how people were selling things on the internet. Um, and, and we launched that business and that, I mean, honestly, it was the turning point in my career. It's fairly ironic for Circuit City, though, because the Internet essentially led, at least in part, to the end of Circuit City, right? Well, it did because I think I think the company didn't know how to how to interpret the success. So the first full year that we were were in the e-commerce space, we did a billion dollars in in online sales. Holy crap! And as quickly as we could make that money, they were reinvesting it to build new brick and mortar locations. And and I remember thinking at the time, like I'm pretty young and I I certainly (laughs) am not going to be the guy that raises his hand in a, in in a corporate meeting, but that doesn't seem right. (laughs) And, and fun fact, it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Circuit city back in the day, they were in the, uh, they were highlighted amongst a few other companies in the, the book. Good to great. It'd be great, yeah. And when I read that, I'm like, man, Circuit City is awesome. Yeah. And then like four or five years later, we're like, oh, wow. It was crazy. I, I I, mean, I worked there for 11 years. So I was in the, I mean, you know, when I first started working there and, and then, you know, um, through the, the, the late 90s, I mean, it was insane. That business was on fire. And I, I mean, they, they also launched and spun off CarMax. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was, it was a crazy, it was a crazy time. And then it just, the, the wheels fell off. Yeah. It was wow. kind of sad. Cause uh, I mean, you worked there 11 years. I never worked there, but I knew a bunch of people that worked there. It was just, it's kind of sad. It's nuts. I, was I remember it based we, in Richmond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a huge campus um, in the West end. Um it, it was a, it was a monster and it was, I mean, the end came quick. Um, I mean, there was, there was one day when I was still there that they laid off thousands of employees. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. a four building campus back there. Um, and it was like, uh, I remember the local news was there, like just filming people, you know, streaming out of there with boxes. Um, I was like, I, I don't think I'm going to want to work here much longer. I think I need to <laughs> take a look in a different direction. Wow. So, so where, where was that uh, next move for you? So I actually, uh, I had a, um, a couple of friends that had gone to work at, at snag a job um, and they were brand new. They had just launched in, in Richmond um, and, and obviously we're, we're, we're playing in the online space. Um, so I went to work there and, and um, it, it was a phenomenal company and phenomenal leadership and, and a really cool business model. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, so I, I was there for, for just over a year, but, but I, I'm glad that it was a, a, a part of my career because working for a small bootstrap startup company like that, that was really focused on, on culture, uh, was really important for me. So, so I was there for, for, for just about a year, uh, and then moved up to, uh, to, to Philadelphia to take a, a job with a company that's now uh, called Fanatics. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so was it at Snag a Job or Fanatics? Where, well, or even Circuit City, where you really started to appreciate digital marketing? It, it was. I mean, uh, figuring it out from the ground up at, at Circuit City and, and also seeing, you know, especially when you're that early in your career, seeing success. Um, you know, we were running campaigns that were generating millions of dollars in sales um, and, and kind of figuring it out 
when no one else knew what the heck was was going on uh, was was pretty cool. I mean, especially I was I was young um, and and still trying to figure out what what my career path looked like. So getting in on the ground floor of, of something like digital and e-commerce was was huge to see you know really learn how it worked and it helped me honestly through every stage of my career because there's really not a job in in digital that I haven't done. Uh, you know, through through that stage. So so I think it's helped me as, as that progression has continued. Yeah, right place, right time, and a willingness to try something new. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's that's brilliant, and it's uh it's beautiful in its uh, simplicity. But it, it does take courage to try the new thing. Yeah, and and also, I mean, it, you're you're right. I mean, it was it was right place, right time. I mean, I, I like I told you, I, I remember being in that meeting where everyone's like, I don't know, the internet, huh? Sounds scary. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. put together more stores. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so um, you guys want to talk a little bit about NASCAR? No, hold on. Let's talk about Fanatics real quickly. Okay. Yeah. So what, what does Fanatics do as a company? They're still around, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the I, I didn't – I was not uh, familiar with, with Fanatics. You know, I think everyone knows, like – you know, NFL shop and NBA store and, and MLB store and, and all those sorts of things. Um, but what I didn't know is that there was a single company that was kind of running the back end of, of all of those. Um, and at the time, the company was, was called GSI. Uh, they were based right outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, again, I, they were not on my radar at all. But in, in kind of a, a weird, um, you know, the, the way the universe works, um, uh, actually a handful of folks that, that I had worked with at circuit city over the years had ended up at fanatics because mm-hmm. they were, you know, essentially an online retailer. So, you know, someone called me and were like, you should come up and talk to these guys. And I went in for the interview. And, and I, I mean, again, like my background is marketing digital, and then I love sports more than anything on earth. So I go for the interview and the guys like explaining the business model, I'm like, oh, hang on, just so I'm clear. What you're telling me is that you are an on, online digital retailer that powers all of the pro sports leagues and, and their, their merchandise efforts. They're like, yeah, so we warehouse it, we build the websites, we run all the digital marketing campaigns, we fulfill the orders. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a moment. <laughs> um, so it, it was uh, the, the recruitment process was a little bit embarrassing. I, I'm, I'm sure I came off as very desperate. And meanwhile, I had a job at the time, right? I'm working at Snag a job, but, but I was essentially begging to, to go to work there. So I, I moved up to Philadelphia and, and took that job um, and, and was there for about four and a half years. But uh, yeah, it was, it was incredible. Uh, Michael Rubin, who, who founded that company out of, out of his, his parents' garage and the trunk of his car selling co-signed ski equipment, uh, grew that thing into a monster, uh, which, which it still is today. Yeah. So I'm, I'm imagining you sounded so desperate that your compensation maybe dropped by 50, 60%. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if they paid me. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I think I forgot to ask. Uh, so this is like, if I'm getting a Celtics jersey or some Patriots gear, like this is, this company is behind all of those like storefronts. And that's exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. Did you that's rub el- cool. elbow with uh, famous athletes? Um, I think indirectly. I mean, what was great is, um, you know, the, Right. The clientele is, is all of the league. So, so I spent a lot of time up in New York meeting with the leagues to talk about their, their marketing strategy. Um, 
what what they wanted to do uh, online, and and they are all just phenomenal people. Um, so you know, all star games and Super Bowls and, and things like that. That that's really where where a lot of the business was conducted. So um, it was fantastic, and I, I'll, I'll give you. Paul, you'll, you'll appreciate this story. So the first time I ever went to uh, the NBA headquarters, I had worked with them for about two years, but I had never been to the office and we were taking another vendor with us. <clears throat> and the other vendor that, you know, we're in the cab or, or on the way to, to, uh, to the NBA office. And the guy's asking like a million questions, like, what's it like, you know, what's the layout, who's there, who are we going to see? So it became a joke, like in the cab, like, it's not like sports center commercials. Like there, there aren't NBA players <laughs> roaming the halls. Right. So, you know, we're, we're joking with him, giving him a hard time. We go up to the lobby, sign in, you know, uh, we're waiting for our meeting to start and we haven't, we haven't even sat down yet. We're in the lobby 30 seconds at best. And magic Johnson walks out of like a side <laughs> door and walks through the lobby into an, and like kind of greet, Hey guys, what's going on? <laughs> so he's like, wait, were you guys messing with me? I'm like, I don't think that happened. I think that was, I think that was a coincidence. Yeah. A pure coincidence. Cause it's, you're not going to, I mean, magic's hard to miss, right? He's listed at six, nine. Yeah. Uh, he's internationally famous at that point. Right. You, in fact, you probably couldn't have found a more famous athlete no, on, I, on earth at the top. Exactly. It, it's, it, it was, it was crazy. I, I laugh about to, uh, I laugh about that to this day, but you know, there were so many days like that where I would, I would just, and I, and I would, you know, I'd tell people back home, you know, family or friends that I grew up with. We're like, what are you doing now? And, you know, people that know me best, I would describe my job and they were like, are you kidding me? That job exists and, and you, you found it. Like, I'm, I'm very lucky. So it was, it was a dream job and, and I, I loved every minute of it. So when you say you, you would conduct business at the Super Bowl, I mean, was it like 20 minutes of business and then the rest enjoying this, the actual game and everything surrounding that game? Come on, Paul. I'm a professional. It was 35 <laughs> minutes of business. No question. Uh, uh, how many Super Bowls did you get to go to? Uh, I think I went to two. Uh, I went to two Super Bowls. I went to uh, a, a World Series, an NBA Finals, um, a Final Four. I mean, it was a it was a it was a pretty good run for, for those four years. Dude, I've never been to any of those things. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. And, and, and flipping, you, you know, this, every time I would tell him like, Hey, I'm, I'm going, you know, to, to the NBA draft this week, you'd be like, I don't understand. I don't understand your job. I don't get it. <laughs> what do you do again? Right. Why right. aren't they letting you go to all these awesome yeah, exactly. events? Oh my gosh. Was the draft fun? The draft was was fun. So um, it was the year that uh, that Kawhi Leonard got drafted, mm. and we just so happened to be sitting with uh, with Kawhi Leonard's family, you know, in in, uh, in New Jersey during the during the draft, and and I had never heard of Kawhi Leonard. Um, you know, I think he San Diego State. Maybe I have that right. I think, I think it's right. Yeah. Um, I, I had not heard of him. I remember the, the Spurs drafted him and I was like, Oh, that's really cool. Like we're, we're sitting with the family of this, this first round draft pick. That, that's pretty cool. Um, and then to, to, to watch his career take off from there uh, was, was pretty cool. So, so the draft was, was a, was a really cool atmosphere. Yeah. He, he has uh, what four rings, three with the Spurs and one with Toronto, I think. That's right. Something like that. Yeah. And uh, you probably didn't notice at the time, but Daniel, just for your edification, he has giant hands. Yeah. Take my hand and multiply by two. 
Oh yeah, yeah. His we talked about massive. this before. Yeah, uh, he can hold a basketball. One, well, everybody can do that in the NBA, but like his hand kind of goes all the way around it. He can do it with two fingers and a thumb, probably. <laughs> I'm guessing. Wow. Did his family like flip out when when he got called? They did, and it was it was kind of jarring, right? Because I we didn't know who we were sitting with. So the pit comes in, and these people explode, and you're like, whoa, what? <laughs> Like, oh, okay, this is his family. That's that's pretty cool. Gosh, uh, that must be so cool. Yeah. Unless all those all those events that you described going to it must be it must have been so electric, just being at, at this like epicenter of all this hype. Oh man, and and it, again, like I, I think, you know, I I was cognizant of the fact that a lot of people that I was with, you know, were were there for for corporate reasons or business reasons, and you can tell they're not enjoying it. And I was like, I, I am enjoying every second of this. This is incredible. I, I never thought I'd attend one of these things, let alone multiple. So I, I, I loved every minute of it. Yeah. You're a kid from central Hanover that could never have dreamed that you would have had those opportunities. No question. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, Dan, you want to go NASCAR now? Cause I, I know you're dying to, to talk. Hey, about NASCAR. I am dying to talk about NASCAR. Yeah. <laughs> USA baby. Um, praise hell. Praise Dale. Uh, so, let me set the stage. Uh, basically, what I really want to talk about is this, this is last year, 2020, um, because uh, NASCAR went through what seems to be like a pretty high profile transformation uh, in, in a few different ways. Uh, and I just I guess I wanted to get your take on that, uh, on all the different aspects of it. You know, like the, the big one would definitely be the, the digital one, getting people engaged. Um, and then there's also the sort of a, of a political, uh, you know, banning the Confederate flag that I remember that really went, sent waves through. I mean, I'm an average, I don't really pay attention to NASCAR. I just kind of see what comes up in the news. And so what, what happened with NASCAR before I knew I was talking to you, I thought, okay, they banned the Confederate flag. That was a big deal. And then the Bubba Wallace thing. And then, uh, and then I went and looked stuff up and I, now I realize that you guys are basically reaching the point of being a digitally native uh, company at this point. So, yeah, I mean, give us your thoughts on that, on that transformation. I think that it, it's so cool that, that you were part of that. Yeah. I'll, I'll um, I, I guess I'll go in two different paths. So the first one is, um, you know, when, when we, when we had to, to shut the season down, I mean, this is, and this is, you know, I think we all kind of remember that stretch of a couple of days where NBA games were getting canceled, like while players were on the court, uh, you know, they, they canceled the masters, they, you know, all of this stuff was happening. They canceled the NCAA tournament. So as all of this is happening, you know, we're, we're supposed to run a race that weekend in in Atlanta. And, you know, there were, it's about two straight days where we're just, you know, the, a handful of folks were locked into a conference room, just having this open dialogue and, you know, getting input from, from other teams and leagues and, and getting input from, you know, our, uh, you know, kind of our, our medical experts. Um, and, you know, it, once it, it was kind of apparent that, that we weren't going to be able to have, um, have real races for, for, you know, some period of time, um, we had this relationship with a company called iRacing, which is basically a, a, a race simulator. Um, and it's, you know, an incredible, incredible product, incredible platform that, that actually some of the drivers use as a, as kind of a training mechanism. Like think of, think of a flight simulator, but for NASCAR, right? Mm. Um, and so I'm 
you know, in these meetings, but I'm also texting with the, the, the guy from, from iRacing. And I'm like, Hey, if, if we, if, you know, we have to go without real racing for, for a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, uh, seeming seemed realistic at the time. Yeah. Uh, I was like, could we, could we get these guys on iRacing? Um, and he was like, yeah, we, we were kind of thinking the same thing. And, you know, in, I think it was eight days from, from that first text of like, Hey, is this even something we could reasonably do that, you know, eight days later, we had a, a race broadcast on Fox that ended up being, you know, the, the number one highest rated esports broadcast in us television history. Uh, and, and that was, that was eight days from, is this something that's possible to, you know, breaking a, a, a television viewership record. And then we did six more races and every week it kept breaking the record from, from the previous week. Um, and it, you know, to, to see that kind of come together through, through a period of time, it was obviously really, really hard on, on a lot of people um, was, was incredible to see. And, and I think it, I think it gave everyone in the sport some, something to rally around um, because I, you know, I, I think there was, there's obviously so much negativity and, and first of all, everyone's worried about, um, a, about their health and, and their family's health and safety and all of those sorts of things. Now on top of that, the sport is, is for all intents and purposes shut down. Um, you know, that, that was really cool to see. Um, and it's something that, that I think we're, we're going to continue with, uh, this year, um, on, on the social justice issues. I mean, uh, I, I think, it is, you know, it's really hard to change perceptions. I mean, perceptions didn't arrive overnight. The perceptions that people had of, of NASCAR or, or its fans or the sport or whatever the case may be became perceptions because, you know, they were led to believe something over a long period of time. And it's really hard to turn that ship on a dime. But uh, I think what made, it, what made it easier was, you know, from, from the top of the company down, there was no, there was no second guessing. There was no, what's the fallout. There was no, are people going to be mad or sponsors going to be upset? It was unequivocally, this is the right thing to do. So let's do it and, and let's move quickly. And I, I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's just like anything else, right? Like once you make that first move and, and you kind of lean in that direction, then everything else feels easier. And it feels like, okay, well, we got through that one. What else can we do? Um, and, and I think that the amount of change that, this, that the sport went through in, in 2020 on the track and off is, is just incredible. Um, so, so it was from what happened with Bubba and Talladega and, and what happened with the Confederate flag ban and, and everything, just a crazy, crazy year. Yeah, NAS seemed- NASCAR's come out stronger on the other end. Go ahead, Daniel. No, that's exactly what I, I was going to say. It, it seemed in the short term, there was some serious backlash uh, from the fan base. But, uh, but then maybe the question is, are those people that we really want um, on board and, and, uh, and, and as fans? So, so, and, then, and then what it also did was it drew all of these, a lot of these younger social media types that were like, huh, that were already really familiar with Twitch and YouTube and esports. And they saw, oh, NASCAR. I thought that was for uh, beer drinking rednecks, you know. And, and then now Pe- sudden, people that, that that look like me, right. <laughs> exactly like you, Paul. Which uh, I which I think you know the message was it's for all of the above, right? I mean, it's it's not it, it it's not meant to be 
exclusive, right? It's, it's meant to be inclusive. And I think to your point, Daniel, I think the, the cadence of the way some of that stuff worked, right? Like the fact that we were leaning into to virtual races and esports and gaming. And then at the same time, now, now we're, we're taking a more progressive stance on, on social justice issues. Like, I think to your point, the cadence of the way those things unfolded, I think made people start paying attention uh, and, and noticing that, hey, maybe this is a little bit different than, than what I thought it was. Uh, or or <clears throat> not only thought it was, I mean, I, I think some of those things were reality in the past. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, um, a, again, there's a reason that, that some of those perceptions existed, but I think everyone was, was serious about changing. Yeah, that's really cool. Paul, my, you're gonna say something? My, my favorite question uh, is the one I'm going to ask right now. Not the current guys, uh, but did you have a favorite uh, racer when you were younger? Um, I was a huge Richard Petty guy. Um, I mean, he's the king, right? King, man. I, I just, uh, I thought he was the coolest. Uh, the, you know, the, the big cowboy hat and the wraparound sunglasses. And I, yeah, I, I was, I was all, all king all day. Yeah, I, I think it came down to Richard Petty, Dale Senior, and uh, and I, I I don't know why I'm like this, but I, I I became a Rusty Wallace guy for a while. Oh yeah, yeah, and he was he wasn't one of the big draw. Well, he actually was pretty big for a, a bit there. Yeah, but, uh, he was kind of like the guy who, who was competing with uh, Richard and, and Dale. Right. So, so I, I picked the guy who that usually came in third behind those two. <laughs> So are there like generations of racers? I, I keep hearing the juniors and uh, does Rusty Wallace have anything to do with Bubba Wallace? Like, is that a NASCAR thing? Yeah. So, so no, no connection with, with Rusty Wallace and Bubba Wallace, but it is definitely a generational sport. So, um, you know, Richard Petty uh, had a, a son, Kyle Petty, who, who also raced and, and is now an announcer. Uh, and Richard Petty still owns a team. Um, so, so still very active in the sport. You know, you got Dale Earnhardt Sr. and then Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, you've got Bill Elliott, who who was uh, was a very big name, and and his son Chase Elliott is is now uh, really the most popular driver in the sport, and and won the championship last year. So, definitely a, a, a generational um, generational sport from from drivers and and participants to to fans as well. And everything I've ever heard about uh, these these racers and the teams around them they typically are just really good people. That is the, the God's honest truth. I mean, I have, I've worked in the sport for eight years now and, and I, I know this sounds like a line, but I have really not had a bad experience with, with the driver. Um, I mean, all just, just really good people and, you know, really solid families and, and, you know, Sure, there are there there are tough days at work, absolutely, but but really good human beings, which uh, which, which certainly makes our our job a whole lot easier. Yeah, and, and my impression of the sport, and I don't know a ton about this, uh, Tim, but I'd love to get your perspective. It seems like it's a much safer sport, even though these guys are going incredibly fast uh, in a highly competitive environment. Like there hasn't been a bad accident in a really really long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Um, you know, Dale Earnhardt's death uh, is coming up the, the 20th anniversary. Wow. And, and that, knock wow. on wood, I mean, that that is, that's the last time there's been a, a, a fatality in a NASCAR race. And if you think about 40 cars going upwards of 200 miles an hour inches away from one another, I, I mean, it is crazy. 
um, the, 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 the safety advancements that, that the sport has taken since then. I, I may have gone 90 to 95 miles per hour on an interstate. Uh, and I may have been too close to some cars around me, but I mean, that, that seems crazy now make it a lot closer, like literally inches and twice more than twice as fast. Yeah. I, I can't comprehend it. No. And it's, you know, it, it being around the sport more the, the last couple of years, I've, I've certainly learned, um, learn more about it and, and learn some of the, the, the different ways to appreciate it. You know, one of the things is, is just the impact that the air will have from one car to another. And, you know, I think the, the comparison that's often used is, you know, if you're, you're on the interstate going 80 miles an hour and you get behind a, a you know, a tractor trailer and you feel how much that air disrupts and, and how your car starts to vibrate. Now, you know, factor 38 other people and double or triple that speed and and then you know put that in perspective of, of how much the air is going to to disrupt what you're doing um it is absolutely otherworldly with what those guys can do when, when did uh ricky bobby become uh part of the culture not not nascar yeah. just in general when yeah. did that movie come out were you uh, at nascar at the time i don't think you were. i wasn't no yeah but do you do, <laughs> How did NASCAR, do you have any idea how NASCAR sort of dealt with that movie when it came out? Not dealt so, with it, but just how they reacted to it. Yeah, I think, I think that it was, it was kind of this mixture of like, oh man, they're, they're just making fun and, and, you know, the stereotypes and they're, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a bad look for the sport. But I think the other part of it was like, hey, the, the reason that people sometimes don't like stereotypes is because they may they may hit a little too close to home. Right. Yeah. So I think there was a little bit of both. I think there was a little bit of like, Oh, that, that those are some cheap shots that they're taking. And I think some other folks were like, well, that may not be too far from the truth. I, I don't know who said it, but uh, news is news, whether it's good or bad, it helps uh, the sport, right? It, you reach new people because of that movie. No question. I mean, and, and listen, regardless of what people thought about it at the time, uh, <laughs> there are not too many days it goes by without a quote from that movie being used in, in a meeting or a conversation. So it's, it's never too far from, from, uh, from, from being top of mind. Oh, it's beautiful. Tim, you may be one of the luckiest people I've ever met. <laughs> it is a great movie. Uh, I, 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 uh, I'm a big fan. Well, you weren't in it. Were you? No, uh, no. Oh, okay. No. Okay. Um, why yeah. did you think that? Because I said he's the luckiest guy. Because you said, he, yeah, you're the luckiest guy. And then and then Tim said, yeah, it's a great movie. And I, I don't know. I just kind of put two and two together. Um, so, so I would Tim, have led with that, Daniel. If I was in talent, <laughs> I wouldn't stop talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before you ever worked there and everything. Um, so one of, one of the parts of your job is, uh, is managing uh, the, the fan base, like the data that you have on, on your fans and some of the marketing efforts you do for them. Um, and it seems like, and I might be getting this really wrong, but there's roughly two kind of bur like burgeoning NASCAR fan groups. There's the, the traditional uh, generational folks that have been with NASCAR for, for a long time. They love going out to the oval and raising hell. And, and, and then you have this like, because of this, uh, this digital transformation with simulated racing and esports, you have these younger kind of more online native uh, folks who, who are really, who really just love esports. Um, is that like 
an inaccurate or is that somewhat accurate? And then how do you also manage to keep NASCAR something that's appealing to both of those groups and everyone in between? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think there's, there, there's two kind of broad segments and, and then <clears throat> probably within those two segments, there's, there's even more, you know, kind of, uh, kind of more segments within. And I think that's where, where our, our database comes into play because I, I and I think that's why we've made a pretty significant investment in that because, you know, it, it can't be a, you know, a, a circuit city type marketing campaign anymore where it's, you know, all TVs are on sale, come, you know, come buy a TV. It's, it's gotta have, you know, you've got to take the foundation of what the sport is and then pull out various components of that, you know, to your point, if it's someone who likes camping and tailgating and, and, and that element, that's, that's gotta be the person that we recognize within the database and tailor our messaging to them. And if it's someone who just likes to watch guys go, you know, 200 miles an hour at Daytona, you know, there's, there's a, a message for that. And then the drivers represent a whole different level of it. I mean, it's, it's not unlike other sports where, you know, everyone has a favorite. So, you know, if, if you can start to tailor the messaging around who your, who your favorite driver is, that creates a whole new alternative. So, I mean, I think, I think it is, you're never going to be all things to all people, but the sport is, is big enough and broad enough that I think you can take pieces and parts of it and, and start to serve that up to, to the audiences that are, that are looking for that in particular. Yeah. And, and conveniently uh, technology has gotten so powerful that you, the, um, the level of targeting that ads can get to nowadays is, is ridiculous. And I know you, you said creepy half jokingly, but I'm wondering like, is that something that you think about, uh, you know, data privacy and, and, rights and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, in your job. For sure. It, and, and we are, I mean, this again, will will sound, uh, sound like a commercial, but we, we do very little, um, third-party targeting, you know, the majority of our, of our marketing is based on first-party data, because I think the notion is that it's some sort of an exchange, right? There's a transaction happening. So, if you tell me more about yourself and, and submit that information, I'm going to keep that data private and secure. And then I'm also going to give you messaging that's relevant to you. And I'm going to keep some of the stuff away from you. You don't want to see. So as opposed to, you know, that, that kind of creepy end around to try to figure out these, these targeting uh, mechanisms to, to serve up ads, I'd rather get people who will tell me what they want to see and, and then reciprocate with, with the, Kind of the content or the messaging that we're that we're delivering that's legit yeah I, there's like this entire market that I, I don't know very much about but i know it exists and i know that it's worth a whole lot of money which is uh packaging up data of on people and selling it around to different companies so that they can effectively advertise and there's something about it that just feels grimy of just my data being out there and being bundled up with all these other people's personal things about their lives and the things that they buy and what they look at online and then being sold to advertisers. And uh, so that's really, that's really cool to hear. Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know if it, it seems, it seems like that would also be a tempting route uh, to, to take, to say, Hey, let's, let's go and like try to buy data on users that look at uh, NASCAR YouTube videos or um, things like that. I mean, are those right. conversations, do, that, do those conversations happen? 
Uh, believe it or not, they, they don't. But I think the reason that they don't is because, and, and YouTube is a great example, I think there's so many mechanisms now that as opposed to a, a paid marketing message, you can just put your content out in the ether and you know, there's enough scale that, that people are going to find it. Um, and, and I don't think that has to be done in, in terms of a kind of a paid advertising target. Um, it's more a, listen, it, it, we're, not, we're not tricking anyone. If you found yourself on the NASCAR YouTube channel, you, you know what you're about to see, right? Um, yeah. so, so I think our thought is to be present in so many different places. And, you know, everyone likes to talk about scale. You know, well, if you're on this platform, is it going to reach scale? I, I, I get why people talk about that because you, you've got you've to figure out where you're putting your investment. But I think of scale as like the sum of all of those parts. I'm not going to get scale in one place or two but I'd rather be present across the board so that if there's someone who is interested in NASCAR or heard something about Bubba Wallace or heard something about iRacing or heard something about a Confederate flag band that they can find what they want. And, and we're, mm -hmm. we're representing who we really are to that person without, you know, trying to dig up their, uh, their, their past three months of buying habits and, and, <laughs> <laughs> target them through some some weird data work around yeah it's a little less invasive that way and yeah paul and i have been uh putting our stuff out into the ether for a while we're glad to hear that it's been working for you guys uh but it's it's been pretty tough for us so we'll let you yeah, know potso one's not quite the brand that nascar is <laughs> well but but you know what it's there is anyone who tells you that they've cracked the code on on that is lying to you i mean it is it is just as much science as it is art and vice versa so you know, it is, um, there are, I am a huge believer in the experience being the leader, right? I mean, if you're, if you're putting out good content and good experience, then that's, what's going to drive the engagement. I mean, you, you could get a, you know, a million dollars capital tomorrow to go put towards branding and, and, and promoting Podso one. But if it, it's not good content, then that million dollars is not going to do you a whole lot of good. Right. Um, but I, I, I think it's, it's kind of that, again, that art and science of, of, you know, some of it, back to what we were talking about earlier, some of it is just luck. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned when I came to, to NASCAR very early on that I was like, that's really fortunate is think about when you're, you're doing something like paid search keywords, the name of the sport, the name of the league, the name of the races, like it's all ubiquitous of NASCAR. It's not like NFL where people could search NFL or football or Cowboys or whatever the case may be. It's, it kind of all centers around this, this one keyword of NASCAR, which is just somewhat fortunate in terms of, of getting audiences to pay attention. So it's, I, I think there are people that, that have, have kind of mastered this art, but I also believe there's, there's an awful lot of right place, right time, dumb luck involved as well. Mm. Yeah, the NFL should have just named themselves football. Football, right. Right. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yeah. When I think of artists and scientists, I definitely think of me and Paul, though. So I think we have good odds. Um, I'm taking it you're the scientist. <laughs> I don't know, dude. Uh, so I have one more question about just like, and this, this might not be super relevant to your job, but I just read this article today that you know, kids screen time since the pandemic started has been up 50%. And a lot of like, um, 
doctors and PhD people are, are worried about, you know, the potential effects of that, uh, like cra crazy uptick. And uh, I, I just, I guess I wanted to get your perspective, especially growing up in a, in a farm where you were out there in nature with a lot of analog everywhere around you. Um, a lot of kids nowadays are like on their iPads a lot and, and uh, even more so now since the pandemic has kind of kept everyone inside and put school virtual. Uh, are you, do you like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, just, you know, the fact that everyone is so much more on their, on their devices than they were when you were a kid. I, I'm, I'm smiling, Daniel, because this is my, this is my topic du jour right now. I, I am last couple of days for whatever reason, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, and, and listen, I, I guess I'll give you two schools of thought as a, as the a parent of a 10 year old boy, I am horrified by the amount of screen time. Right. And, and I would love for him to be outside more and, and doing something that doesn't involve him staring at a screen. But if I'm, if I take a step back and evaluate the way the world is operating today, think about how many careers are, are based on a screen, you know, everything from people who are getting paid to, to play and develop video games to people who are getting paid to develop content to people that are learning things because of the vast information that's available on the internet and, and through like a, a more connected world. So um, the more I think about it, the more conflicted I am um, because I, I think I read something last week where someone was talking about, um, you know, we, we talked earlier about professional athletes and how they spent their whole lives training and playing to become the best that they possibly can. Well, that just so happens to take place outside. But what if that happened on a screen and someone started limiting the amount of time that they could practice baseball to mm. 30 minutes a day? And, and I, I thought that was a really profound way to, to look about, look at it and think about it. And, and I, I don't, this is a really long-winded way, Daniel, of telling you I don't have a great answer to your question, but that I think it is a phenomenal topic of discussion right now. And I don't, I don't think it's as easy as, as kind of a, you know, limiting screen time or not limiting screen time. I think there's way more nuance to it. That it and if you would have asked me the same question three months ago, I think my answer would have been very different. But I, I think I, I just you know, I don't know if it's, it's um, thinking about it more or, or being faced with it with a, with a 10 year old every day and, and seeing it up close. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting topic and it's certainly uh, come to the forefront now where, where people have been locked indoors for, for, for the better part of a year. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. And I, I mean, yeah, it's, it is nuanced and there are uh, good things about it there are good things to do uh, with a screen. And then there are things that can, you know, be long-term detrimental to do with the screen and, and um, to kind of lump all into either good or lump all into bad is just not gonna. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not going to work out and, and being prohibitionist and stuff, but yeah, it's on the t at the top of my mind too. I mean, I'm a software engineer, so I uh, am staring at a screen for like nine, 10 hours a day. Um, and I'm staring at a screen to talk to you, which I'm really <laughs> thankful for. Yeah, right. uh, I, was I the only one picking up on the irony here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just, um, yeah, it's just something that uh, I, I uh, have at the top of my mind. So thanks for yeah. your, thanks for your answer to that. Yeah. yeah, that was a really good answer, Tim. I'm glad you didn't ask me, Daniel. I would have had no idea what to say to that. <laughs>
Hey, uh, I ask all the uh, hard-hitting questions, obviously, Tim. Uh, how many races did you go to in 2019? Ooh, uh, 2019, um, probably 12. Sweet. Have you been to Daytona multiple times? I have. What, I have. Your, well, let me ask you this. What's your favorite track to go to? Uh, you know, Daytona, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you three. Uh, Daytona is cool just because it's Daytona, right? I mean, it's, it's just an iconic, um, sports venue. Uh, I like Richmond because I, I grew up there. My dad was a Henrico County policeman. So when I was a kid, he would take me to the races when he was working. And, you know, I just, I had flashbacks every time I go there that, that I'm going there as part of my job now. And and I can still remember being there as, as a kid. Um, and then the third one, there's a, there's a track in Sonoma, um, literally in the, you know, in the hills of Sonoma in the middle of line country in Northern California, there's a, there's a road course there, which is just a, an incredible location to watch a NASCAR race. It sounds wow. amazing. I, I would love to go to Sonoma actually. So Daniel, the, the whole notion of an oval, uh, a road race like that turns, I don't know, 20 sometimes. For yeah. Each lap. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. it's not just left turns. No, no, they're all right. They're making right turns and left turns, and you're coming up on <laughs> I, two wheels. It's 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 mayhem. So I saw uh, I was watching highlights in preparation, like NASCAR highlights and preparation for this. And uh, one of them, this car just rear-ended a car in front of it for no reason, and then the announcer said, "Yep, typical Richmond." And I don't know what, what that means. Is that does Richmond have a particular reputation? Yeah, so so Richmond is a is a uh, a short track, which you know it, it, there's a there's bigger super speedways like Daytona where it's a really long track and and there's a lot of room. Um, not it's not to say it's an easy track by any stretch, but uh, typically short tracks there's not as much room to pass and and move around. There's a lot of guys bumping into each other and banging on one another. So so typically. Um, you know, tempers will, will flare up a little bit at, at short tracks like Richmond. Yeah. Okay. What's up, what's up with Virginia having a bunch of short tracks? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, uh, I, I think you've got that, that kind of, uh, Southern hotbed of, uh, of racing. So, uh, you, you've got some of those, some of those short tracks. They, they, I mean, I've been to Martinsville a couple of times and it is, it's the craziest thing to see in person. I mean, it's like, it's like you're at a high school football stadium, but, but there just happens to be a NASCAR racetrack in the middle of it. It's crazy. I I remember uh, when I was a kid, so this goes back 35 years, we were driving from basically Chattanooga, Tennessee back to Richmond and the Bristol race was happening that weekend. And and that's a long drive to go from Chattanooga to Richmond. So we were going to spend the night, in so, somewhere in Southwest Virginia, East Tennessee, we couldn't find a hotel. Yeah. We ended up driving all the way to Richmond because there were no hotels basically in Western Virginia. Yeah, that's right. It's crazy. I, it I think nuts. it's still like, well, I mean, obviously with the pandemic, it's been different, but yeah. uh, typical years that it is like that at, at those tiny tracks. And you look at the, at the track and the surroundings, you're like, why is there a track here? Yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> exactly. It's good times. Uh, are you going to Daytona on the 14th? Uh, I am. I, uh, my wife is a huge fan of the fact that the Daytona 500 uh, keeps landing on Valentine's Day. Um, oh, she's, she's a big, she's a big fan of that. Oh, it's brutal. Uh, so tell us about your, your wife and, and son. Do you have other kids? 
Uh, just one. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so my wife, uh, Bita, B-I-T-A, she, uh, she grew up uh, in Iran uh, and, and moved here when she was a kid. And uh, it, it is, um, I, you know, we were talking about in, in, the, in the military, uh, being around people from a different background. Uh, that, that is also the case with my wife. Uh, we, we come from, from very different backgrounds, but, uh, but yeah, we've, we've been married for 15 and a half years and, um, you know, she's, she's been very patient with me in, in terms of, Hey, what about moving to Philadelphia? Hey, what about moving to Charlotte and, uh, and, and doing so, uh, while, while trying to start a family. So, uh, so yeah, um, my wife beat in and my son miles, uh, is 10. And then, uh, we've got a, a dog that, uh, who's named Shay after Shea stadium. That's been with us for about 14 years. Uh, who's, who's the other, other member of the family. Nice. Is, uh, miles really into sports? You know, I, he is not, I, I don't know where I went wrong, Paul. I, I, I just, I, I used to think like, man, I'm going to have a son and he is going to be, like, he's going to play every sport. And I had him in every sport when he was a kid. Uh, and, and to his credit, he did them all and, and kind of finished the rotation and he was like, all right, I'm done. Yeah. Like, Oh, all right. Tim, you'll, you'll appreciate this. So I put my son in every sport I could think of. He lasted anywhere from four years to five or six years. But by the time he got to high school, there were a million other things he'd rather be doing than playing sports. And, but when he was a little kid, like he was maybe three, I put a bat in his hand. So he'd be a lefty. (laughs) <laughs> and he was actually a lefty and he was good. He just, it just didn't do anything for him. Yeah. Why, uh, why be a lefty? Cause you're close to first base buddy. And back to the foot speed thing we were talking about earlier. Every Gilman needs to be close to first base. You were looking at your three-year-old and you were like, Oh yeah. MLB. Here we come. I wasn't thinking MLB, but I was thinking at least he could play in college. I mean, come yeah. on. I, and I started, there was a, there was a time after he, he really started giving up on sports and I was like, well, maybe I'll carve out like a niche. Like, what if I just work on him being like a punter or a long snapper or something that's like a really specific niche that he can get into sports? That didn't work either. The punter, a punter in the NFL is the best job ever. Yeah. Right. You, you don't have the pressure of putting it through the goalpost. Right. You just have to kick the ball pretty far and pretty that's high. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> I, I should, I'll, I'll work on my grandkids someday. Yeah. To be, yeah, to well, be punters. And don't forget that. Remember we were talking about how, uh, generalists are there's a book that's like why generalists uh, succeed in a specialized world so a lot of the time those pro athletes are ones that did play did do the rotation so don't yeah. don't just like you know that's a good point daniel stick to one thing there yeah. you, there you go daniel out, yeah. out, out thinking me once again hey <laughs> hey tim uh Bita was how old when she came over uh she was six does she have memories of iran she does yeah yeah um, so they left, I mean, in the midst of, of, you know, the, the government overthrow, I mean, that they, they were like, you know, her, her dad, you know, basically snuck them out in the dark at night and, and they, you know, got out with, with what they could carry and, and, uh, and went to Canada and, and eventually to the U S so, wow. uh, cra- just crazy. And, you know, her, her dad is, uh, you know, just recently opened up on, on some of the stories of, of, uh, of, of that whole period of time, which just insane. Yeah, it was about 40 years ago, right? When they came yeah. over? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I vaguely remember those days, but it was uh, – nobody. most of Americans didn't even know where Iran was. I mean, in fact, 
maybe most Americans don't know where it is today. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I d- yeah, you growing up where you grew up, being married to somebody from Iran, that's that's amazing. I love I, it. I, I, it's so funny you say that, Paul. I mean, you, you'd really have to know Hanover County to know <laughs> how long the odds are of some guy growing on a farm in Hanover County marrying someone who was born and raised in Iran. Oh, t- Tim, I knew one Hispanic guy growing up, and I knew uh, one Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's good times. Good times. Well, hey, Tim, it's it's been about an hour and a half. I, I, we don't want to put you through any more of this. It was great talking to you, man. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen you in, in uh, 20 plus years, but it was really good to connect tonight. No, for sure. I, uh, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. This is this is a lot of fun. And, uh, and I, listen, I, I think, you know, for, for what it's worth, uh, you, you you guys have put together something pretty cool. I mean, the, the, first of all, putting yourself out there to, to, to do a show like this, you know, and stick with it, I, I think, I, I think is, is more than, than most people would do. Uh, but I appreciate you guys uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel. and, and <laughs> no, no, no chance. By the way, it took me 51 years to figure out. I like doing this. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll send you my address so that you can send me those uh, Richmond raceway tickets. Wow. Um, Thank you. <laughs> that, 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 he never does stuff like that, Tim. That's I, the first time I, he's ever done that. I'll be offended if both of you aren't, aren't at the next, uh, next Richmond race. Uh, <laughs> I will, I'll send you guys uh, tickets, passes, wh- whatever I need to do to have some, some pots. one representation at Richmond. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Maybe we could even set up the podcast there. There you go. Oh man. Probably well, not. Tells me the audio would be pretty tough, <laughs> but yeah. Thanks so much, Tim. It was awesome talking to you. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.